was working on my wife's car a couple weeks ago. I was putting a new fan belt on. Do you know on the back of a car fan belt, it says, be sure you stop the motor first. Ron and Anian. There are some cars that are worth spending $6,000 on to shape them up. There are some cars that I wouldn't spend six cents on for the match to set them on fire. A thousand dollar car that ain't worth nothing. I might as well take your thousand dollars. Set fire to it. You gonna put a fan on the car, you better shut that motor off first. You can't stop it with your hands, man. It's like a machine or something. The car doctor. I drain, I change a filter, and I top it off with five quarts. And I guess I just looking for your opinion. First of all, I think I think 50, 60,000 mile trans flushes are probably too long if we absolutely want to eliminate any varnish. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's your sign. Here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome, Ronnie Andy and the Car Doctor here. Welcome aboard as we continue to motor forward and talk about your automobile and its problem. Your problem is my problem. That's what the Car Doctor does, and we do it each and every weekend right here for you. So uh, stay tuned, sit back. We've got a great couple of hours of automotive talk for you. And we're going to kick it off right now with none other than Paul Eisenstein of the Detroit Bureau, the DetroitBureau.com. Paul's got some very interesting and exciting news on all fronts automotive. Today we're going to specifically talk about electric cars and the GM strike, and who knows what Paul might throw in in the meantime, too. Paul, welcome back, sir. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're very welcome. There's just an awful lot going on. I, I Let's get right to it. Electric cars, recent article uh, talking about some of the tariffs and taxes that are being imposed upon electric vehicles state by state. Yeah, this is a, uh, getting to be a very interesting story. You know, we hear about incentives out there to help encourage the sale of electric vehicles, but in a, a growing number of states, EV owners are being hit with additional fees and taxes. Now, there's a legitimate reason for it. Even some of the proponents I've talked to have said, yeah, uh, EVs, of course, don't fill up at a gas station, and they don't pay the gas tax, the, the highway tax that you and I do when we pump gas. So making up for some of that in, in terms of some sort of fee probably makes sense. On the other hand, a uh, study by Consumers Union found that a number of states are charging fees, adding on fees, uh, might be your registration fee, for example, as little as $66 or in some as much as $500. And those fees are far more than what we would pay on a comparable vehicle driven about the same distance for the gas taxes that we pay rolled into the price of a gallon of gas. Yeah, we, we actually were talking about it a few weeks ago, and I think we figured it out for the state of maybe it was Minnesota that – uh, that that someone would if they went I think we're doing it based on twelve or fifteen thousand miles a year that the gas tax they would pay was something like three hundred bucks uh, something along those lines but the the fees were or was it five five hundred bucks um, six yeah I, six. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's the exact numbers but the, but your point is taken uh, if you go apples to apples in terms of what uh, most of the electric vehicles out there. Uh, would get in terms of uh, what they would pay if they were gasoline powered versus what these uh, many of the states are charging. They're they're getting ripped off. In yeah, case. and uh, you know it, it's a funny it's a funny double edged sword, right? We're, we're we're trying to 
make electric cars more appealing and the alternate fuel and here's how we're going to do it and solve so many of the issues in, in, in the world, the environment, fossil fuels and so forth. But now we're just, are we over-regulating electric cars? Is this the beginning of it, Paul? Yeah, it may just be. And of course, we just had uh, President Trump uh, take steps to eliminate the California waiver, which could also uh, take steps to lower the appeal of, of electric vehicles. And you know, some people like that. They, uh, the auto industry certainly would like to have one national standard, though we've already seen that four of the automakers, Ford, BMW, Honda, and Volkswagen, did a deal with California to actually basically adopt the tougher standards that California was putting out there, uh, in part because they really want to move to electric vehicles. The reality is automakers are not just doing it because of, of uh, regulations, but also because they really do believe that these long-term are better vehicles. And here's the, here's the interesting thing about uh, I, I would imagine that I have a few of the listeners shaking their head and say, what the heck is Eisenstein talking about? Well, the reality is, first of all, uh, prices of batteries are tumbling. What was $1,000 a kilowatt hour at the beginning of the decade, uh, Volkswagen was reportedly paying $100 or less for the same amount of batteries in their new ID3, the electric vehicle, their first long-range model. They're just launching in Europe, and it's going to come down even more. Mark Royce, the president of General Motors, expects that, the, that basically an apples-to-apples -apples electric vehicle versus a, uh, a gas vehicle will be at parity by about mid-decade, which is pretty substantial. And if you like performance, guess what? You can make electric vehicles a lot more fun to drive. If you look at some of the vehicles out there right now, what you're seeing is crazy good performance, not just on some of the Teslas, but across the board. Electric vehicles get maximum torque instantly yeah. the moment the motor starts spinning. And that's why you are seeing these incredible new high-performance, high-end uh, supercar electric vehicles that are doing zero to 60 in some cases. Are you ready for this? At two seconds or less. Wow. Wow. Staggering. But, but Paul, isn't it, if, if the entire, based on what we know at the present time, if the entire fleet was somehow tomorrow replaced by electric, is it possible? Is it feasible? Is there enough material for battery? Is there, and how do we, you know, all of a sudden we have to retrain an industry that's, that still struggles today with internal combustion engine repairs, and now we're going to teach them electric car? The, the role well, You've hit on a few angles. Let me, let me go down a few of them. Uh, start with the back end. The, the bad part for the shade tree mechanic, uh, as well as the service department, uh, but the good thing for the vehicle buyer is that electric vehicles are basically much simpler, fewer moving parts, far fewer, simpler, and uh, by and large, uh, they're expected to have far less maintenance costs, uh, uh, you know, basically operating and maintenance costs than a comparable gasoline vehicle. And we're starting to see that batteries are lasting a lot longer than the automakers had expected they would. And the newer batteries, uh, Elon Musk, for example, at Tesla is saying he believes that some of the batteries they're, they're now putting in their cars could last a million miles. Wow. So, uh, so the reality is, uh, yes, we'll have to retrain them, but hey, you know this as well as I do, you had to retrain to be able to learn how to work on cars with all the electronics on board. True. So that's not new. Yeah. That is not new. 
but may, in many ways, these new vehicles will be simpler. Uh, so that that's a good thing. Now, there are some issues, and one of them is the charging infrastructure. Uh, and then, of course, where do you get the electricity? Now, there's, there's a simple way to deal with both of those. For one thing, 80% of people that now have electric vehicles, and there are hundreds of thousands of them on the road, closing out on a million in the United States, the vast majority, 80 to 90% of them, charge at home because the reality is you will have an advantage over a gas vehicle. Every morning, you simply have to plug in at night or at work, and you'll either start the morning or end the day at work with essentially a full battery, full range, which, depending on the vehicle, might be three or 400 miles. You won't be worried about, oh, my God, it's Friday, and I haven't filled up, and I've got to stop. I've got to leave for work a little early, or I'm not going to get there. Right. Well, the reality is most people are going to be charging up either in their apartment structure, some cities now requiring apartments and parking lots to have chargers, or you'll do it at home or at work. Uh, and then there's a question that people ask a lot of times. Well, wait a second, but where do we get all the electricity? Well, remember that by and large, utilities have a huge surplus of electricity at night. And that's when most people will be charging. So the reality is most estimates, even the most conservative estimates, uh, forecast that there'll be very few, very few new plants, generating plants needed, even if we were to go over to almost 100% electric overnight, which won't happen, of course. Uh, but the fact is that we do have a surfeit of generating power that can handle what, we're, what we would likely put out over the next 10 to 20 years when people charge overnight. They said, oh, I think it was 15, 20 years ago, that if we got 10% of the fleet to convert to electric, the price of fuel would tumble because demand would be down. Do you still think that's a fair there, number? There's a good argument to be made. I've heard this from from uh, a number of uh, a number of industry analysts right now. That in fact, one of the reasons that we have cheaper gasoline, even with recent run-ups, uh, if, if if you think about it, our gasoline is is pretty darn inexpensive right now. And one reason is because fuel economy has gotten so much better. I, imagine how much more fuel America would need, how much more raw petroleum we would need if we were getting fuel economy just equal to say what we got in 1980. Well, with lower demand, uh, the reality is that drives prices down. And the more electric vehicles that get on the road, it's it's largely believed the prices will continue to tumble. Right. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Paul, can you stay put? Let's hold you over. Let me pull over and take a pause. When we come back, let's talk about the GM strike and all yeah, that's absolutely. going on there. All right, sir. Thank you very much. We're with Paul Eisenstein of the Detroit Bureau, the DetroitBureau.com. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We'll both be back right after this. Whether it's a little red Corvette or a Yugo, you've come to the right place to get that car fixed. Ron and Amy and the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. Now, back to Ron. Hey, it's me, and let's uh, let's cruise on over, and let's go back to Paul Eisenstein, the Detroit Bureau. Hey, Paul, how are you, sir? Hi. Good. Good to be with you. Um, yeah, it is good. It's uh, always always a good talk, right? You and I could probably talk for a couple of hours, but unfortunately, it's a two-hour show, and we have to... <laughs> um, uh, the GM strike. Let's go right to it again. Um, the GM strike. Oh uh, yeah. Where where are we with this? Well, you know, 
there were some people that thought that they'd be able to sidestep it, but I have been expecting a strike and possibly a long run. There's a lot of issues here. Uh, just, to, just to name a few, health care is, is one. Apparently, GM wants to cut back health care. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel that the company owes them because they gave huge concessions to help it come out of bankruptcy a decade ago, and they point to the massive profits. I mean, what, $8.1 billion that it made last year? The, the uh, crazy big pay and benefits that it's been giving to top executives like Mary Barr, their CEO, and so on. And there's also there's a couple things that complicate the problem. Uh, one, you have politics playing in. Uh, you have the uh, Trump administration that wants to try to keep workers happy because they helped in Michigan and a couple of other states, helped get him elected, uh, helped put the electoral, electoral college vote in his category and in key states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And then you also have the the uh, corruption scandal, which has uh, ensnared, I think, uh, as of yesterday, 11 different UAW officials who have been tied up in, in a sort of pay-to-play scandal, and uh, that has focused now on two of the top leaders, the current and the past president of the union, uh, who very well may also find themselves charged in the, in the next few weeks. So you have workers who, no matter what their union negotiators come back with in terms of a settlement, are sitting there going, are we getting what we should, or are these guys cheating us? You know, it, the, the bottom line comes back to if, if they made money, you would think they'd be willing to spread it out among the rank and file, right? It doesn't make any sense. It, it, it seems like we're missing a piece of the puzzle. Well, there is, of course, the issue of competitiveness. And, and the reality is that uh, union workers at the auto companies, at the big three uh, Detroit automakers, uh, turn some of the highest wages for uh, uh, for that type of, of worker in the United States. They make more than the same auto workers would make at, at uh, the VW plant in Chattanooga, for example, the Mercedes plant uh, down Alabama, the uh, Hyundai plant uh, also uh, in Alabama, and so on. Though those places, curiously, uh, maybe not so curiously, tend to increase their wages and benefits almost to Detroit levels every time there is a settlement. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. And it's surprising I've seen this happen in the 40-odd years I've been covering the auto industry. Uh, you just ha need to have one particular breakthrough and a contract that seemed unsolvable suddenly falls into place. But I've also seen it where the smallest disagreement, even a small issue, can wind up having people on the picket line for weeks perhaps even a month or more. You know, you wonder if, if it also, and I don't know this, but I'm thinking about it, uh, you wonder if the cost of living in Tennessee is so different than Michigan that you need the higher wages to survive in Michigan versus Tennessee and vice versa. You wonder where that comes into this, too. Uh, yeah, there's a, li a little bit of that, though, if you look at all the various states right. that, uh, that the Detroit automakers operate in. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that cost of living is, is the critical one, but it is a factor, yeah. and certainly health care. Uh, having having the companies start to talk about taking away what has been a golden health care program is not going to go down very well. 
Now, one of the things, if you don't mind, I'd like to see us talk about real quickly before we run out of time yeah. is, is the subject of what happens to consumers. How is this thing going to affect them? Well, and you read my mind. I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, what happens to the person that wants to go out and buy a GM product? Is GM going to run out of product? I know it's based on a so many days supply. And then what about present vehicle GM owners? Are they going to run out of replacement parts? Is any of that affected in this? Yeah, in fact, I did a story for our site a few days ago and uh, just had a, a, an even longer version come uh, go live on CNBC this morning. And that is a very, very significant issue. The good news for people who do want to buy a GM product, the automaker knew that it had a risk of a strike and started boosting production to get as many vehicles out to dealerships around the country as possible. Uh, they do measure it in day supply. Typically, an auto, an auto dealer... Uh, an auto company likes to have about two months, 60 some days worth of inventory on the ground at dealerships or in transit at any one time. Uh, they actually have about 77 days worth at GM, more truck than car, which reflects what's happening in the market. Uh, the problem is the Teamsters have decided that they will honor the picket lines and in some cases not deliver vehicles that were ready to ship to dealerships, uh, but are still uh, at the factory and other locations. So that may cut that supply down a bit. Plus, you're going to have some of the really hot cars uh, that may be in shorter supply or will, you know, will just vanish real quickly. And after, well, if this goes for a month, I would be surprised if there aren't a few hot models that become a little bit difficult to locate. Uh, and, of course, as dealers start running out of product, they may decide to be a little bit less willing to negotiate uh, to give you a deal to get something that they might run out of that they could sell at full price or perhaps even higher. And then you mentioned the Corvette. Well, there are some of those new 2020 models which were really just getting into production that may now be weeks or even months delayed in getting into the showroom, and that could include the new C8 Corvette. Right, not not the best time to be uh, introducing a mid-engine Corvette first of its yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, an, there's another issue I should talk about real quickly, and that is the one that has to do with repairs and service. And you know this very well. You could probably, I should have called you up for my story. Uh, well, and I'm, sure, is, and, I'm, and I'm sure the issue is that parts themselves are going to slowly disappear from the shelf. Paul, we got to leave it there. We're up against the clock. I'm sorry to cut it short like that, but let's pick this up again anytime you want, pal. I'm here for you. Paul Eisenstein of the DetroitBureau.com. I'm Ron Anini in the car doctor, and I'll be back right after this. The car doctor, 855-560-9900 is the phone number. Again, 855-560-9900, the car doctor's 24-7 phone number. Call, leave a message. If we're not on the air, we're live Saturday afternoons, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. Tom Ray, executive producer, will call you back and get you in the next live queue. One final note. We just ran out of time. Paul Eisenstein conveyed, and I want to convey it to you. If you were lucky enough to hear that interview, great interview, as always, from Paul, the DetroitBureau.com. Uh, one concern he had was at service parts, and he makes a very, 
valid point. Collision shops may suffer. If you have a 10-year-old vehicle, he pointed out, you may not be able to get that fender or hood, whatever it is, using original GM parts until after the strike is over. So the GM strike may affect us in more ways than we can imagine just beyond replacement of a new vehicle. So uh, just something to be aware of. We hope for a quick and a speedy end to it. I don't think anybody wins in a situation like this. Let's open the phone lines. Let's get over to Ben in Florida. Some comments and questions about Moog upper ball joints. Ben, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. Thanks for doing the show, man. I look forward to it every week. Thank you, sir. How can I help? Uh, so in the, it's a Chevy or GMC Savannah 06. I've done, I'm not an, not an auto mechanic by trade, but I am a mechanic and I've done a fair amount of them. So I put them on my van and about a week later, I was having tires installed and they took the weight of the vehicle off the suspension with lifting it in the air to put the tires on. They heard a loud pop and it was the ball joint snapped into two pieces. And I installed it, torqued it to spec, thought it was weird. I talked to the manufacturer who said that their ball joints are directional, meaning there's a there's a dot on the top, and that dot has to face a certain direction. And I failed to do that, and that was the reason why it broke. But I've installed this manufacturer's ball joints in the past, never heard of such a thing, and I'm wondering if you have. Moog? Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the only thing I've seen Moog do is they position the boot the grease boot so that the grease boot will spooge grease inboard away from the brake assembly. Some of the upper ball joints. Was Which ball joint was this, Ben? Was this the one with the offset for camber caster adjustment, or was this just the standard straight ball joint replacement? It was a standard uh, ball joint replacement. I know Moog is, has a big campaign going, and you talk about it sometimes, too, with the whole white box deal. Watch out for parts that are sold right. not in the blue and yellow box, and, and, and I'm very aware of that. I know you got to be careful, and the product arrived in, in the right box. And it, it, to me, I mean, I'm loyal. I'm pretty loyal to that company because I've always thought it to be what, one of the best bangs for buck in, as far as suspension goes. But, man, when they, when they answered me with the whole directional uh, part of the equation, it just sounded like um, fishy. Like, no, you, you've got a little problem with your castings going on right now, and you're trying to. Because if nothing else, if this was a new design that's directional, I would imagine they would at least include the documentation in the box saying, well, "Hey, and, and just beware." You, you read my mind, brother. I'm I'm sitting here thinking about it, and I'm saying, you know, and I will still, even after doing it all these years, I always look at any instructions any manufacturer puts in a box, but I've never seen a specific dot on a Moog ball joint, or anybody's ball joint for that matter, that it has to be installed in this position. And okay. I, I think I think we're missing some communication from them somehow, because I think the potential as a manufacturer for something to go wrong, if we're going to count on somebody lining up a dot for dot, and we're not clearly identifying it, tagging it, putting up a big, hey, look at this, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I, I think we've got a recipe for disaster, much less a safety issue. Imagine if that vehicle was on the road, hit a bump, and the, and the ball joint let go, and the tire folded under the frame, and you were doing 60 on 95 in Florida. Where would you be today? Exactly. Uh, That's so, exactly uh, right. That's what the mechanic... Yep. Yeah. I, did, you, did you buy these online? So, good question. I did. I bought them on Amazon. However... Uh, I spoke with Moog, and they 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 reassured me that the the, the distinguishing sign of 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 OEM or, or you know a, a true Moog part or not is the box. They're like, listen, if it arrived in a blue and yellow box with our name on it, and I know what their box looks like. It wasn't like a 
Anyway, right. I mean, I could tell it was one of their classic boxes. Then, then they reassured me, no, that is a Moog part. And they, <clears throat> the email came back to me as it's directional. It's, you have to install it with the and, – and they're correct in that there is a dot on the top of their ball joints, the one I installed. However, to use that as a defense and not, and not say not, – not, not be surprised that I didn't receive documentation or, hey, there should have been a paperwork in the box. You didn't get it. No, no, no. Some, something well, something right. doesn't add and, up and, there. I think. And the bigger question is, so what are you supposed to line the dot up to, and were there instructions in the box? Well, there there wasn't instructions in the box, and and the fact that they didn't even mention it. Now, can crazier things happen than a part go out and someone failed to stick a piece of paper in a box? Sure, I mean I could see that. Okay, and and no, and like you said, I mean it it, it wasn't catastrophic. It happened to break on the lift, and I was thankful for that. But it just it was very disappointing. I mean it 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 it, it was disappointing. I, I've used I, their products gotta, for years, and I, I got to do it like this. I tell you to get down to your local auto parts store. And okay. pull that same part number off the shelf. Do you have an O'Reilly? Do you have an O'Reilly Auto Parts by you? Yeah, we do. And I just went for the first time recently on your recommendation, and it was a, a step, a, a cut above. It yeah, was a, and, it was a cool and, place. Yeah, I do, and, I do and, have one. And get down to an O'Reilly Auto Parts. Pull, ask them to pull that same part number. All right. Okay. Good and idea. O- open yeah. open the box while you're standing there and say, "Hey, I just want to see one thing." And if there's instructions in that box that tell you to line the dot up with something then your conversation should be with Amazon because now whoever Amazon's vendor is, uh, and you can go back and look. It would be interesting to see, did Amazon ship that direct? Is that being shipped through Amazon by Moog, in which case it comes back to Moog, or is it being shipped from, you know, Bob's Auto Parts and, you know, downtown wherever, and they're just using Amazon as a, as a sales portlet? And it, it, did somebody mishandle? I got to tell you, suspension pieces. I've got a couple of local parts houses to me that you know they know my feeling. I won't buy and I won't accept anything if there's fingerprints on it. If it looks like the box has been opened, if it, if I don't see a complete what I believe to be you know a nut, cotter pin, plastic bag, instructions, I won't accept the part because I don't know where it came from. It's been picked through. So, um, but For do sure. that. It, 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 yeah, it, it it was a sealed box, so I, I, it's either Amazon or uh, Moog's mistake or not. However, you're, I'm right. gonna hear you loud and clear. I'm gonna go to, to O'Reilly's and open a box and see if there's documentation. See I what goes it. from there. All right, sir. Listen, good luck to you, and I appreciate the call. Thanks for thanks for being part of the Car Doctor family, man. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. Bye you're, now. You're very welcome. You take good care. You know that's a problem. This is a real problem. Where you're getting your parts from? It's you can't be so quick to you know jump out to the internet and just buy what it is you want to buy because. And, and, and this is the argument. This is why a repair shop can't install customer-supplied parts. So play the scenario out. Bob walks into your repair shop. In this case, it would be Ben. Ben walks into your repair shop, hands you two ball joints. Hey, can you put these ball joints in? Sure, no problem. It's a slow day. Let's put two ball joints in for Ben. Ben's been a regular customer. Now he wants us to use his parts. Yeah, he got them. He's not doing it. His wife, you know, told him no more working on the car around the house. A lot of things. You got to take it down to Ron's. Ron puts in the ball joints. Now the ball joint breaks. And there's no instructions. And maybe maybe Ron's guy didn't see. There's no instructions. You know, install the part the best way you know how. And all of a sudden now that wheel folds under the frame. And maybe maybe it's an it's an accident. Maybe there's a fatality. Maybe there's a big lawsuit. Why would a repair shop take the responsibility? Because the repair shop's insurance, if they have it, is going to go chase the manufacturer of the part. 
Well, who sold you the part? Well, this guy on Amazon. Turns out that guy on Amazon called Bob's Auto Repair is really some guy in China that's using a front. And you want to go sue somebody in China? Have at it. Let me know what year you get back. 855-560-9900. Speaking of getting back, we'll do that in a couple of minutes. I'm Ron Ananian. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Ron Ananian, The Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. Bob from Connecticut. You're on with The Car Doctor, sir. 99 Dodge Ram Van. How can I help? Hi, Dr. Ron. I yes, enjoy sir. your show very much. I Thank learned you, a lot from you. Thank you. Uh, the problem with my van is, well, I, I'm going to give you a little history of it. I, it has only 119,000 miles on it. Just wait wait for it. I it Just wait, wait for it. Just broken in. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, Bob. Yes. <laughs> After 20 years, uh, it only has 69,000 miles on it when I bought it. I've had it eight and a half years. I've had good Look, with uh, Dodge cargo vans, I had an 85 that went 285,000 miles and a 94 that went 245,000 miles. So this one, as you say, is just being broken in. However, I have a broken problem that my mechanic hasn't been able to solve. It has stalled seven times over the past four and a half weeks. It always starts the first time of the day, and after each time I restart it during, after errands. And the first time it stalled, the check engine light went on and indicated a voltage problem. So my mechanic changed one of the terminals to the battery, but that didn't solve it. It stalled two days later. And when it does stall, other than this next time, it's, it took me five times to restart it. And then I let it sit for 10 minutes, and it did restart after that. And while I was trying to restart at that time, heavy exhaust came out. But after that, though, it always restarted the first or second time after restarting. And it would usually stall when I came to a slowdown or to a stop. And only once it stalled, and the very last time it stalled, it stalled while I was accelerating. And the check engine light for uh, 1389 went on, and he changed the relays to the computer and to the fuel pump, but it still stalls. Okay. So, so what sort of di- loss. He, other than other than changing parts, Bob? What sort of diagnosis has he done? Has he measured voltage anywhere? Has he looked um, at, at any scan tool data? Is it is it what's what's he done beyond? Well, let's change this part because that's what the code says. Anything? Actually, he didn't give me any details of what else okay. he's done. So the, the, uh, the, the, he, he says he has one of these big uh, diagnostic uh, machines that dealers have that cost ten thousand dollars. So yeah. he's used that. I, I do but too. I, it's I the know. thing between my ears. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not ten thousand dollars though. So the, the flow chart for a P thirteen eighty nine talks about problems with what we call the automatic shutdown relay, which is the main power relay that powers up and controls the engine PCM. All right, that flow chart is a good dartboard. Beyond that, it doesn't really help you fix the car. So he's really got to understand what it is he's chasing. All right. Um, I agree with changing the automatic shutdown relay. Hopefully he used a Chrysler part so we don't get into the conversation about, you know, a marginal aftermarket piece duplicating or replicating a similar condition. Where I've seen 1389... Say again? It wasn't available from the dealer. Okay. Um, So he... uh, an ASD relay for a 99? That's oh, possible. Yeah, I guess that's possible. It's 20 years old now. Yeah, I called a dealer myself, and they, they, well, they stopped making these in 2003. Right. And they, Chrysler just doesn't supply the parts anymore. So, so let's, let's do this. Let's, let's understand what a 1389. A 1389 means that the onboard computer saw, or the onboard computer is being turned off because the shutdown relay is turning it off. The key is in the on position requesting uh, the relay stay on, but it's for whatever reason it turns off. Now, I've seen faults with where the 
automatic shutdown relay plugs in. It plugs into that junction box under the hood where it will, you know, underneath the power distribution center, um, what he wants to do, and maybe that's what you're describing to me, he wants to flip that power distribution center over and take a look for any corrosion and make sure the connections for the relay are really crisp, clean, and tight. CCT, as I like to say. All right? Crisp, clean, and tight. He wants to pay in particular attention. There's what we call pins 30 and 86, all right, going up to the relay and pin 87. Pin 87 coming out of the relay is the signal wire from the relay out to the powered component, in this case the PCM. We want to make sure that they're good, clean, and tight, all right? Um, we also want to make sure pin 85, which is ground uh, control from the PCM, that that's good, clean, and tight. All right, and keep in mind, 87 could also go to other components. My point is that four-prong relay is is really the brains of the operation. That's that's sort of like the gatekeeper. You turn the key on, request the vehicle to start and run. That if that ASD relay doesn't get proper ground from the PCM because it's looking for a response from some other things, it's not going to allow the vehicle to start. Same thing could be said. You're driving along, you come up to a traffic light or even doing 40 miles an hour going down the road in midstream that relay turns off, so does the vehicle, all right? So what I wanted to think about doing is sit down with a wiring diagram, all right? And if we wire in some bulbs, let's wire in some 194 side marker bulbs, all right? Different colors, make, make a white bulb the input voltage, make a, a, an orange bulb the output voltage across the relay, and he can start to break that relay down. When the stalling happens, is the light on or off? Did the light blink? Did the light change? And at least this way he can diagnose when he's not there, when you're driving the car, and then all you have to do is report back to him and say, hey, it did this or it did that. Have him do that this week. Call me back. Let me know what the results are, and we'll take you to the next step. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's cruising back right after this. Welcome back. We're on the end of the Car Doctor. I want to tell you a real quick story. Just, just... How involved computers are and just how you have to expect the unexpected. I had a 2016 Jeep Cherokee, I'm sorry, Renegade this week, uh, the smaller Jeep, to replace four tires on just yesterday. And I drew the ticket and put it up. And long story short, we have, we have this is a TPMS car, tire pressure monitoring sensor vehicle, like all cars since 2008. And we use a system of valve depressors that we screw on the end of the valve stem, depresses, let the air out so that we don't have to take the core out, because sometimes you take the core out on older TPMS sensors, you'll break the stem, break the core, and now it gets into more money, you have to change the sensor that otherwise was okay. So we depress the air, and it's, it's just safer and easier. So now understand, the car's on the lift, it's off, the key's on the front seat, the window's down, and I'm just letting air out of the tires. I go through the process, I, I change the tires one at a time, I do the mount, I do the balance, I put it back on the car, I you know, put everything together, wheels back on, hand torque, you always hand torque, and set tire pressure, 35 all the way around, just like the door placard says. Start the car up, back it out, and the tire pressure light's flashing. Hmm. Gee, did I clip a sensor? And then within five seconds, the display on the dash brings up all the tire pressure readings. Five, zero, eleven, I'm saying, wow, how could it be recording low? I thought about it, and I said, you know, I bet you the module, the TPMS module, was still awake when I was doing the tire service. It stayed awake for whatever it was, 10, 15, 20 minutes. 
I drove the car as soon as I heard 35 miles an hour, 1.21 gigawatts, and I didn't go back in time. All of a sudden, you could see the TPMS sensors reset. 35, 35, 35, 35. Shows you how module memory is such a part of the car today. I'm Ron and Andy in the car, Doctor. Good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.